Well, I'm delighted to be back with you. Five years ago I was here and I brought greetings from the seminary from which I have now retired, but I bring you greetings from a sister congregation, Country Club Christian Church down there on Ward Parkway, which turns out is more of a sister than you might have imagined because our two congregations along with two others in the city are partnering with William Jewell College and the Center for Faith and Culture. So we're, we're pretty tight and, uh, and it is good to be back and to be with you. As the writer of the Gospel of Mark puts it, just prior to this, Jesus had sent the disciples out to do at least these three things. One, to cast out demons, which I'm guessing is not a nine-to-five kind of job. I have no experience with that. Second, to heal the sick which anybody in the medical profession will tell you is incredibly exhausting and rewarding, but incredibly exhausting. And then third, they were to preach the gospel, which I'm sure you know is the hardest job there is, right? That's why Jason's been on sabbatical. It's a hard job. The text says that Jesus, seeing their fatigue, decided it was time to get away, to go on retreat, because as the text says, they had been so busy, there was not even time to eat. And ever since that moment in the history of Christianity, retreats and eating have gone together. I mean, it's even in the word, retreat. There's treat in there, there's eat in there, and that's what we do. We go to church camps, we go to conference centers, and there is always some kind of program and always food. Not always the best food, right? You've had those runny scrambled eggs with, made with water or something, and those lasagnas at night. But I've had some really good meals on retreat. Do you mind if I make you hungry for just a second? In 2004, I was for three weeks at the National Cathedral in D.C. at their college right on the grounds, and they had a chef by the name of Hassent. And she made the most amazing fried chicken, thin, boneless pieces, lightly breaded, and with, I think, a hint of lemon and rosemary. Oh, my God. Am I making you hungry? Well, forget about it. There's not time to eat. That's what happens in the text. There's not even time to eat when they get on the retreat. The crowds, hearing that Jesus has moved on, they come and interrupt the thing, and so the disciples kind of stand back, and eventually, it's getting late, they kind of look at their watches, and they say, "Um, Jesus, probably be good to, you know, send these folks on because they're going to need something to eat. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. And the disciples are flabbergasted. That's not Greek, but that's what it says. They're absolutely shocked. How how are we supposed to do that? But you heard the story. They sit down in these groups on the green grass, and with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish, they feed 5,000 men plus women and children, and there are leftovers. Now, I don't know what you bring to miracle stories in the Bible. Traditionally, there have been kind of two common responses, the debunkers and the defenders. The debunkers say, "Uh uh-huh, right, it's not possible. 
You cannot feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves. Well, unless, unless everybody gets the tiniest little piece, can't be done. The defenders, on the other hand, usually with arms crossed, defenders like their arms crossed, they'll say something like, well, I don't know how he did it, but if the Bible says Jesus did it, Jesus did it. Thankfully, scholars offer a third approach. And it it sounds kind of odd at first, but this is how it goes. The miracle stories in the Bible are not nearly so much about the miracle itself, but the story that gets told through the miracle. So, for instance, in the second half of the reading, when Jesus comes to them, they're in the boat, he's walking on the sea, and he calms the storm. Well, if all you have to say is, my Jesus can calm the storms at sea, okay, but what's the point? I mean, do any of you live on a cruise ship? Is this a problem for you? there's There's no point. But if you remember that on the very first page of the Bible... The waters represent chaos, which God brings order to. Then what you have here is Jesus as the Lord of creation, bringing order to the chaos of our lives. Now that that has meaning. So what are we going to say about the bread? Do we say, well, my Jesus can multiply bread. Okay, but what's the point? Notice what Mark does. He links the two stories together. The feeding narrative, and then the storm. And the reason I say that is because the very last little phrase in the text, they're they're just dumbfounded, right? They're astounded when Jesus calms the storm. But then it says, because they didn't understand about the loaves. Which is just so odd. You would think at the end of a story about a storm and a boat, it would say they were dumbfounded because they didn't understand about storms or waters, or boats, but it says about bread. Mark wants us to hear these two stories together to say, if Jesus feeds us, Jesus will care for us. But I think there's something even more profound here. And to get at it, I don't know if you grew up in Sunday school or vacation Bible school where they sometimes did role-playing. I don't mean the fancy kind where they had robes and all of that. I mean cardboard sign on a piece of string you put around your neck. Did you ever do that? You know, the teacher looks out and says, okay, you're a short kid. You be Zacchaeus. Uh, There's a troublemaker. We'll let him be a Pharisee. Somebody needs to be Mary and Martha. Who would we be in this story? It is so easy to say Jesus feeds us. Jesus cares for us. But... What if, what if the sign around our neck says, we are the disciples? And Jesus says to us, you feed them. What if that's who we are? You know, in the other Gospels, the disciples come off looking, eh, you know, not, not great, but not too bad. In Mark, they don't get it. In Mark, they are constantly flabbergasted, dumbfounded, astounded. They are, in a word, thick. They are slow to catch on. And I have to say, I wear that sign pretty well, especially when it comes to the people who are hungry. Sometimes 
I'm on retreat, you know, I'm on the way to lunch to visit with somebody in the congregation or a minister in the area, and, and I'm thinking about that place that has this great salad with salmon on it. Why is this guy on the corner standing there with a cardboard sign, he'll, he'll work for food? You know, and I think, I think they have a really good key lime pie at this place. I'm pretty much like the disciples in Mark. Many, many years ago, I heard a pastor say, there are three ways that most of us see people in the world. Three ways. The first way is as landscape. They're just part of the scenery. If you go to the plaza tonight and there is nobody there, you're going to look around and say, what, what is going on? They're just supposed to be there. Now, they're not people. They're just part of the landscape. The second way is as machines. If you sit down in one of those restaurants, somebody's going to come and take your order. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know what their name is. You don't care. They're just there to serve you. But the third way is people. To see people as people. The disciples look out on 5,000 plus landscape. Jesus sees people who are hungry. The text says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Which, by the way, I think is a really important part of this story. I think Mark writes this story with Psalm 23 in mind. There's a shepherd reference who looks over the sheep. There's stilled waters. There's green grass that they sit on. And in the presence of that wilderness, a table is prepared and their cup overflows. But Jesus' vision is not Psalm 23 for religious folks at a funeral. It's his vision for humanity. It's his vision for the world being cared for and fed. So I did a little bit of homework this week, very little. I emailed Andrea and said, so tell me about the food ministries at, at Second Baptist. Oh my gosh, I didn't expect an email that just went on and on and on. A lot of bragging in that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and it reminded me of the congregation I serve. We have all kinds of food ministries. But then I started thinking about something, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but you know, when I'm wearing the disciple in the Gospel of Mark little piece, and I'm sometimes thick, I support all those ministries. I give to the church. But sometimes when I'm feeling particularly thick or in the doldrums, I find that it makes a big difference if I go and actually serve if I actually go and feed the poor. In our case, it's Micah ministry. And to go on a Monday night and to push the little cart around and say, did you want seconds? You want, you want another piece of cake? To feed the hungry is incredibly empowering. So my last sabbatical at the seminary was in Atlanta, Georgia. I taught a class at Emory. I was working on a book. And I went to church on Sundays, and I eventually settled on one church. But before I settled on it, I visited around, and one church, oh, it was, it was not a good experience. But something happened. 
I was listening to the sermon. I taught preaching for 30 years, and I would have given it a B- minus if I was grading on the curve. It was so bad. I tuned it out. I'd come back and listen for a minute. Then I was knocked unconscious, and then I'd come back. It was kind of like coming out of surgery, the anesthesia. But near the end, he said something, and it caught, it caught me. He said something about why churches have kitchens. And I thought, well, that, what, what? Why churches have kitchens? And then he said, our congregation over the next few weeks is going to feed 5,000 hungry people in our community. And he said, it's because churches have kitchens. And I thought, that's so interesting. Churches have kitchens. Why do churches have kitchens? Who... Who do we plan to feed? 